The reading for today is taken from John chapter 20, verses 1 to 31. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my, my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the other disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fears of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, was one of the twelve, was not with them, with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks on his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. My name is Phil. I'm the assistant minister here at Christchurch Mayfair, and it's my privilege to be preaching to you on Easter Sunday that Jesus is alive. Let's pray as we look at this passage together. Father God, we pray that you would help us as we read your words to be filled by your spirit with the confidence, the assurance, the hope, and the joy that Jesus is alive that he is with us, and that in him we can live. Amen. What do you think is the greatest moment in British history? The greatest moment in British history. We know for sure what the funniest moment in British history is. Research tells us that the point in time when the most Brits laughed at exactly the same moment was on the evening of the 8th of January, 1989 when only fools and horses, Del Boy falls through the bar. It's just, it is comedy. If you've not seen it, look it up. It's what YouTube was invented for. Del Boy, only fools and horses, falling through the bar. It's just absolute comedy gold. The moment in time when the greatest number of Brits all howled with laughter at exactly the same moment. But what about the greatest moment? The happiest moment. End of World War II? World Cup win in 1966, episode one of the Great British Bake Off first series. Actually, we're pretty cynical, the Brits. We're still waiting for a moment of greatness, most of us think. But you know what? The greatest, the happiest moment for the entire human race came almost 2,000 years ago. And that was the day when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And in John 20, we're going to see this morning why that is the greatest, the happiest, the most joyous, the most transformative moment in all of human history. We will see that because Jesus is alive, you and I, sitting here this morning, can have life. Eternal, abundant, joy-drenched life. A life that brings peace now and hope for the future. And a life that transforms absolutely everything that you and I know. The first thing, though, to be clear on is what we mean by saying Jesus is alive. We are not saying he was reincarnated, that he became a, the, we had the new Jesus, like a, the, the new Buddha might uh, be reincarnated in a new person. No, he was not reincarnated. We're not saying he lived on as a set of teachings, an ideal that transformed humanity. We're not saying that after his body had died in the grave, his spirit lived on and is with us. The Bible says something far more radical and revolutionary than any of that. The Bible teaches clearly that Jesus Christ himself rose from the dead, his body came back to life, and his body is now living. In other words, on April the 21st, 2019, today... Jesus' heart is still pumping. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. Physical red blood cells are still flowing through his veins. On a cold morning in the new creation, you'll be able to see his breath. 
Jesus is alive. Now, we're going to focus just on the last eight verses, really. There's so much in John 20. I think we'll just focus on the last eight verses, where John shows us two things about Jesus' resurrection, and you've got them on your sheets. We see, first, that hearing is believing, and secondly, that believing is life. Or, to put it bluntly, Jesus really rose, and it's really good news that he really rose. That's what we're going to see. Jesus really rose, and it's really good news that he really rose. So uh, come with me to verse 24 of John 20. Uh, Thomas, doubting Thomas. Now throughout the account of Jesus' death, his trial and his death, John has given us lenses through which to look at at what's happening. He's given us people who we're to stand in their shoes and to gauge our response to Jesus. We saw last week it was Pilate, and we were challenged as we stood with Pilate. Will we allow the cost of following Jesus to prevent us from accepting the truth about him, like Pilate did. This week, it's Thomas and the challenge of, will we accept the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, even when we didn't witness it with our own eyes? Verse 24. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Thomas, also known as Didymus. You can imagine him saying, I hate that nickname. Why does everybody call me Didymus? I mean, when people write up the accounts of Jesus for thousands of years, I don't want to be known throughout all church history as Didymus. It's a ridiculous nickname. Why can't they give me another nickname? Careful what you wish for, Thomas. Uh, But we should be eternally grateful for Doubting Thomas. There's a nickname for you, my friend. Because Doubting Thomas stands where you and I are. Hearing the excited reports that Jesus is alive, Jesus has risen, and wondering, can I believe them? Do I trust what they say? Verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. The great Christian leader J.C. Ryle used these verses to say, look what bad things happen when you miss church. (laughs) <laughs> you miss the gathering of people and uh, gathering of God's people and look what happens. He's right, but I'm not really sure that's the main point of this passage. What is it here to teach us? Well, Thomas is a skeptic. If you want to be anachronistic, he's an, he's an enlightenment rationalist before his time. He refuses to blindly accept the dogma, the beliefs of the community, and he demands evidence. He will only accept what he has seen with his own eyes and touched with his own hands. And I think that what Thomas says in verse 25 sounds very reasonable to you and me. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Sounds very reasonable to us. But but when you look at it, Thomas is doing more than saying, I need to be certain, I need good evidence. What Thomas is actually saying is, I refuse to trust anyone other than me. The only evidence that I will accept is what I can see and touch myself. Now imagine what life would be like if that was your approach. If you actually lived like that. If you only accepted what you had with your own eyes, seen live and touched with your own hands. You'd be a flat earther for a start, unless you've flown into space or sailed around the world yourself. You'd be a Holocaust denier. 
unless you'd been at Auschwitz at the time the atrocities took place. You'd have to be a total skeptic for the lunar landings. Were you there? Jesus is actually quite blunt with Thomas when he does then meet with him. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry, Thomas. I understand your doubts, and I have to say, I really admire your integrity, Thomas. He says, Thomas, stop doubting and believe. It's quite rude, really. Why is he so harsh? Why does he rebuke him? I mean, isn't it reasonable to, uh, to question Jesus' resurrection, to, uh, to want some serious evidence? I mean, it's just not normal. People do not come back from the dead. But Jesus rebukes Thomas, and Jesus is blunt with Thomas, because Thomas is not being rational. He's being stubborn. Now, it is not normal for people to come back from the dead. Jesus isn't saying, Thomas, you should believe in fairies. It's not normal for people to come back from the dead, but Jesus is not normal, and nothing about his life has been normal. Thomas has 39 books of the Old Testament spanning 1,500 years full of prophecies about the Messiah and in particular promising the Messiah would be rejected and killed but then rise again. Isaiah 53, perhaps most prominently. And he has seen every single promise about the Messiah's life and death fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now he has over a dozen men and women he knows and he trusts telling him Jesus is alive, just as Jesus told us he would come back to life. Telling him, look, we've met with him, we've talked with him, we've eaten with him, we've touched him. And yet Thomas refuses to believe. I think we get another indication that Thomas was being unreasonable in verses 28 to 29. Look with me there. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, he worships Jesus. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you notice what Thomas doesn't do? What Jesus doesn't say? Thomas doesn't touch Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, because you've touched, you've believed. See, Thomas said, I will not believe unless I touch him. And yet as Jesus stands before him, Thomas realizes very quickly that the evidence he was so sure he absolutely needed, he did not really need. And so Jesus declares, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And in the centuries since Thomas, many have resolutely declared, I will not believe in Jesus unless he appears before my very eyes. And yet they've come to see that the evidence of the historical gospels, the four eyewitness accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, they are more than enough for us to have a rational, robust, intellectually credible belief in the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Famously, last century, there was a a skeptic called Frank Morrison who ended up uh, writing a number of books, and he set out to disprove the resurrection And instead, he ended up writing a best-selling book called Who Moved the Stone? As he looked into the evidence and found that there was more than enough evidence 
In fact, the most rational conclusion of all the evidence was that Jesus had risen as the Gospels proclaimed, that Jesus was alive and that he could trust in him. Christian faith is not blind. But of course, reasonable people believe many things that they've not seen with their own eyes, as long as there's reliable evidence. Conversely, seeing is actually not always believing. It's quite extraordinary to us, but if you turn back to John 12, a few pages earlier, John 12 and and verse 37, uh, four or five pages um, earlier, John 12, verse 37 This is the end of the the period of Jesus' ministry where he's been traveling around and he's performed countless miracles. He's calmed storms, healed hundreds and hundreds of people. He's fed 5,000 of them miraculously. He's even just raised a man called Lazarus from the dead who's been rotting for three days in a hot tomb. And yet we read John 12, verse 37, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. No, it's ridiculous. But I know a guy um, called Len, who I've, been, I've known for a number of years. Uh, he's a travel agent who I met down in Wimbledon and been seeking to share the gospel with him for, for many years, and he's still not convinced. What's really interesting is Len is convinced that he's seen God perform miracles. While his wife was uh, in hospital with cancer, there was a lady terminally ill on the bed next to her, and her church came around and prayed for her. And she was healed and got up and walked out when they said she should be dead within the week. And he's absolutely clear that was a a miracle performed by God. Won't put his trust in Jesus. Seeing is not always believing. Actually, you have all the evidence you need to put your trust in the living Lord Jesus in the gospel accounts. And if you've never looked into it, then do so this Easter. The empty tomb of Jesus is actually the ultimate fact of human history. At some point, you have to engage with it. There is no tomb with a body of Jesus Christ. And the only explanation that really stands up is that given by the eyewitnesses in the Bible who told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And for 20 centuries, all the firepower of skeptical humanity has sought to attack and undermine the gospel accounts. But 2,000 years later, they still stand up to scrutiny as reliable. Not clung to by the fundamentalist few, but trusted in by millions. Some barely literate, but others are professors of science. Eminent ancient historians, manuscript experts, senior lawyers and judges all have found that the Gospels are reliable, that they are truth, and that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a a nice idea, but a fact of history. You can trust Jesus today, and I challenge you, if you do not believe in Jesus risen from the dead, I challenge you to look into the evidence. Read one of the Gospels for yourself. You can take away a copy of John's Gospel this morning afterwards. And because we have all the evidence that we need, you and I need, to put our trust in the living Lord Jesus, we also have all the evidence we need to introduce others to him. Now, you may not feel that you're equipped to answer all the questions that your colleagues or your friends might ask, but you are equipped to introduce them to the reliable eyewitnesses. Give them a gospel account. Let them look at the evidence. Let them encounter Jesus for themselves. 
Jesus is alive and hearing is believing. The gospels are how you know it and you will find it's true. Secondly, believing is life. Now, the last uh, two verses of chapter 20 are John's purpose statement for his book. And they tell us why Jesus' resurrection is so very, very wonderful. And as we'll see, uh, John doesn't write to satisfy intellectual curiosity about Jesus, to enable future generations to know with certainty that Jesus is alive today. No, he wrote so that we would know Jesus through his words and believe in him. And as we put our belief, our trust in him, that we might have life. John 20, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs. That's John's word for miracles, because they, they, they point to who Jesus is. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, what does John, though, mean by life? And for that, we need to remember what the Bible means uh, when it talks about death. Why is there death in the world? Well, God warned our ancestors in the Garden of Eden that if they disobeyed him, if they turned away from him, if they sinned, rebelled against him, that on the day that they turned away from God, that day they would die. To sin is to turn away from the God who is goodness and life. And it means death, eternal death, cut off from God forever. See, death in the Bible is intimately tied to turning away from the God who is life. Of course it is. And so John declares in the most famous verse, actually, in his gospel, John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not die but have eternal life. See, what was going on on Good Friday as Jesus died on the cross is that he was absorbing in himself the punishment, the judgment of death that you and I deserve for our sins. And when he rose from the grave, it was clear that he had won, that he'd finished absorbing the death sentence, that death couldn't hold him because he'd paid it in full. So the promise of life that John makes here in John 20 verse 30 is a promise to all who trust in Jesus that sin has been dealt with, that the curse has been lifted from your shoulders, the price has been paid in full. You know, that great book in heaven that records everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, that book that God sees, that God writes, with every fact of your life in the book that ought to lead to our eternal condemnation, the moment you put your trust in Jesus, your book has stamped in his blood the words paid in full. And you are free. Your sins have been paid. We read Romans 8 earlier. So triumphantly, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not even death can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so perhaps the most wonderful verse, actually, in chapter 20, John 20, verse 17, Jesus explains what it means that he's risen as he speaks to Mary outside the tomb. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and now your Father, to my God 
and your God. Through Jesus' resurrection, the barrier of sin has been dealt with. And now you and I can know God the Father as Jesus the Son knows God the Father. We can share in that relationship, that family, that joy, that eternal life. Eternal life flows from God the Father down through the Son to all who trust in Jesus Christ. Okay, so life in John is primarily eternal life. Life that lasts after death. What difference, though, does that make for you and me day to day to know that we have this life if we trust in the risen Jesus? I read a a particularly stunning example of the difference it makes in a book called The Insanity of God. Uh, The writer is traveling around the world looking at persecuted churches, and he's chatting to some Chinese house church pastors, and they're talking about how much they frustrate the secret police and how much they enjoy frustrating the secret police. And he says, and one of them says, the conversation often goes a little bit like this. The police say, you've got to stop these meetings. If you do not stop these meetings, that's having a house church meet in their house, we'll confiscate your house and throw you out into the street. And the owner of the house will respond, do you want my house? Do you want my farm? Well, if you do, you need to talk to Jesus because I've already given it to him. Everything I have is his. Well, and they'll say, well, we don't, we don't have any way to get to your Jesus, but we can certainly get to you. When we take your property, you and your family will be left with nowhere to go. And the house church leaders boldly declare, well, then we'll be free to trust God for shelter as well as for our daily bread. Well, if you keep this up, we'll beat you, the persecutors tell them. Then we'll be free to trust Jesus for healing too, the believers respond. So we'll put you in prison, the police threaten. By now, the response is rather predictable. Well, then we'll be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives in prison to set them free. We'll plant churches in your prisons if you do that. If you try to do that, we will kill you, is the final vow. And without a consistency, the house church believers reply, then we'll be free to go to heaven to be with Jesus forever. It's rather extreme. It's a little bit disconnected from our daily lives. But wow, that's the difference the eternal life makes. But the principle is actually the same for you and for me. The truth is that for most of us, we do have this desperate need for everything to work out now in this life. For this life to be comfortable and happy and fulfilling. For illnesses to get better, for relationships to work out, for finances to come through. But what if it doesn't? What then? Well, the message of the resurrection of Jesus is eternal life. And that means that what is most valuable, truly most valuable, is most secure for you. Your eternal life. Your status as forgiven by Jesus. Your place in God's family as his child. Jesus has won those for you by his resurrection. And they can't be taken away. And so even if this life is marked by tragedy... Even if you feel that this life has been ruined for you, it is not the end. Jesus' resurrection is the promise, the guarantee of something better coming. Not just of a a happy ending, but of a whole happy life to come that lasts forever. What is most valuable is most secure. No one can take from you the eternal life that Jesus Christ has won for you in his resurrection. Even death loses its sting because Jesus is alive. Do you know where the word cemetery comes from? We talk about the place where we bury dead bodies as a cemetery. It comes from the Greek word for sleep. Because for those in Christ, death is temporary. 
Just as when you go to bed at night, you know you'll wake in the morning when the sun rises. So when we're put into our graves, we know that we will wake when the sun returns. Uh, Connie prayed earlier about two Christian teachers from another commission church, known to many here, who were killed while on holiday for Greece. Young, happy, lovely couple with all of life to live. Their death is a desperate tragedy. And their families must feel absolutely torn apart. But Millie and Toby trusted in Jesus Christ. And so as well as aching grief, their family said this. We grieve at our loss of Millie and Toby. Our only comfort is in knowing that you are having the best party with Jesus right now. And one day we will join you too. We are sustained by the same sure hope of Easter resurrection. That's the difference Jesus' resurrection makes. So in one sense, you can say to yourself, as you get up each morning, what is the worst that can happen today? Because what is most valuable if you trust in Jesus is most secure. You cannot lose your forgiveness tomorrow when you wake up. You cannot lose your place in God's family. And you cannot die, not eternally, for Jesus is alive. But the resurrection doesn't just change our eternal destiny, the future. It does also transform our now, our today in this world. You see, Jesus rose here in this planet and had a new physical body, uh, a body for this world, stood before Mary on that first day that she clung on to. You see that when he appears to the disciples in the passage we've been looking at and says, peace be with you. Not peace will be with you one day in the new creation. But verse 26, peace be with you now. Because Jesus is with you. Now he brings his peace. And he is still with us today by his spirit, not in his physical body. That's in heaven. And that's much better because there he was in one place at a time by his spirit. He is with us wherever we are. What does that then mean for us? If there is, uh, there is hope for us today, what do we actually mean? I think it does mean there is no such thing as hopeless anymore if you trust in the resurrection. There is no such thing as hopeless in this life. Now, many of us here trust Jesus, but at the same time, we look out at our lives and there are situations that are so dark, so sin-ruined, so long-term and so hopeless, we just cannot imagine any way they could be changed or improved. We cannot see how on earth God could bring good from, from what we're going through. The terminal illness of a loved one, a toxic marriage, brutal life experiences that uh, leave us feeling utterly broken, hopeless, useless, a fight with a particular sin that just always seems to have us beaten. But remember how things looked the day before Easter. Imagine on the Saturday as, as Mary and the disciples wept together in the darkness. Jesus was the focus of all of their hopes, and now he was dead in a grave. Jesus was the one who was going to bring the fulfillment of all of God's wonderful promises, and now he is dead in a grave. Jesus is the one, and he had the power to, to calm storms, to feed the hungry, to cast out evil, to raise the dead, and now he was dead and in a grave. 
I have to say, I cannot imagine a more hopeless, devastated group of people. What hope could you have offered to them to lift their spirits or encourage them to trust in God? But on Sunday, I don't know what darkness you face right now. And I don't know whether God is planning to miraculously transform your situation or to work miraculously through you to refine you and grow your faith. But I do know that if you trust in Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as hopeless. For the risen Lord Jesus is with us. And he brings hope and he brings life. This is so good that if we get it, it changes everything. I love how confused the angel sounds earlier in the passage as he, as he meets G, uh, Mary outside the tomb. Verse 13. Woman, why are you crying? I mean, it just makes no sense to him. From where he's standing, he's like, what on earth are you doing crying? If you were standing where I am, if you could see what I see, if you could see who's standing behind you, what are you doing crying, Mary? The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection transforms sorrow to rejoicing. As the disciples gather together, verse 19, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ transforms fear to peace and hope. As Thomas is full of doubt and cannot believe this can have happened, we see the resurrection of Jesus is a truth that transforms doubt to life-giving faith. Trust in him today. Renew your trust in him today. And you can know that, hallelujah, Jesus Christ is risen and I have life. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the glorious news that Jesus is alive. Thank you that this means that uh, what is the worst that can happen to us in this life? We know that there is eternal life to come. And nothing can rob us of our eternal life, our relationship with you, our forgiveness in you. Thank you too that there can be no such thing as hopeless now for Jesus is with us and he can bring peace and hope and life to even the darkest of places. We pray that you would help us today whether we need to investigate the evidence to find out whether we can trust him or whether we need our faith deepened, that we can trust him in the situations that we are facing. We pray that this Easter, we might know the hope and the life that Jesus Christ alone can bring. Amen.